Welcome to the Water Learn Show and to my 52nd birthday. This is March 10th, 2022. It's also a happy anniversary, my sixth anniversary to Rejoice Tap On. But that's not what this whole thing's about. I wrote a book about Eastern Europe. It's called The Hidden Europe. And in it, I said, well, don't worry about Russia attacking Ukraine unless somebody is drunk too much vodka. So now here we have it. And surprise, surprise, somebody in the Kremlin drank a little bit too much vodka. A lot of people have asked me, what is my opinion of the whole thing? And this is where I want to say the words I love to say. I was wrong. I love saying that because nobody else does. And I love to admit that I was wrong and I was spectacularly wrong about this. Now, apparently I'm not the only one who was wrong about it. Michael Maful, who is a U.S. ambassador to Russia for several years, he said, I've watched and listened to Putin for over 30 years. He has changed. He sounds completely disconnected from reality. He sounds unhinged, unquote. He certainly knows a lot more about Russia and Putin than I do. And that's what he said. Another one was Tatiana Stanovaya. She's an expert on the Kremlin and the founder of the political analysis outfit RealPolitik. And she was quoted in a February 25th, 2022 article in The Guardian where she said, Putin had always seemed an extremely pragmatic leader to me. But now when he's gone into this war against Ukraine, the logic in the decision is all about emotions it's not rational. And finally, Marco Rubio, Republican U.S. Senator of Florida, he's the deputy chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He put out a tweet saying, I wish I could share more of the confidential information that he knows. But for now, I can say that it's pretty obvious to many that something is off with Putin, unquote. Several experts, people who know way more than I do, have basically said the same thing that I have. I've always viewed Putin as somebody who was super pragmatic, very shrewd, extremely good at taking calculated bets and smart decisions. And his invasion of Georgia, I think that was in 2008, his invasion of Ukraine in the Crimea in 2014, the annexation of that, and grabbing the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine, all these things were like little things. But he would never be so stupid as to flagrantly attack Ukraine or Estonia or Latvia, Lithuania, or any of the Stans. It just didn't seem possible. And here we are. That's exactly what he's done. He started off with Ukraine. I admit that I was completely wrong about that. And as a result, I start to question all my opinions about him. In much of the same way, it reminds me of Donald Trump in the sense that in 2016, I was telling everybody there's no way in hell the guy's going to win the 2016 election. Hell no. And I was wrong. So when people were saying, asking, well, who do you think is going to win the 2020 election? I was like, well, in 2016, I was sure that he would lose. So I don't know anymore. So the same thing with regard to Putin. I say with utmost confidence, there's no way he's going to flagrantly attack the entire country of Ukraine. And I was wrong about that. So now if people say, well, would he attack the Baltic or would he attack Central Asia or anybody else, the United States, Alaska, whatever? At this point, I'm like, hell, anything's possible at this point. <laughs> once Donald Trump wins the 2016 election, that was anything's possible. Same thing, once uh, Putin attacks, attacks Ukraine, anything is possible. Here's another area I was completely wrong. I figured that Ukraine would quickly fall. Not, not because there was not passionate dislike for Russia within Ukraine. I knew that only about 25% of Ukraine is ethnically Russian. And by the way, that's the same as Latvia and Estonia, so around roughly 20-25% Russian as well. So in that sense, if Putin finds 25% ethnic Russian is good enough to attack a country, that puts Estonia and Latvia at risk. 
because they have similar percentage of ethnic makeup. And, of course, he could drum up the same reasons and saying, hey, there's genocide, abuse, and all sorts of other stuff. I've been surprised that Ukraine has put up such a, an amazing fight so far. They could topple in April or sometime later. Who knows? But so far, they've put an incredible amount of res, uh, resistance. But I just think to myself, what was Putin thinking? I mean, it was bad enough for the United States to go into Iraq and Afghanistan and, and somehow try to think that, hey, once we come there, we're going to be seen as liberators. We get rid of Saddam Hussein and everybody's going to cheer on us. And Putin had the same kind of delusions. And he got there and I think he was uh, disappointed. But now let's shift topics a bit. And I want to talk one more thing about that I think is important. Somebody said, and it's not clear who, exactly who, said that the first casualty of war is truth. And I want you to imagine a particular scenario. Imagine that Mexicans attacked Russia and they blew up a bunch of buildings in, the Red, in Red Square or the Kremlin, killed a bunch of people, a thousand or two thousand Russians. Uh, how would Russia react to these Mexican terrorists? Well, it's quite possible that they would send out troops and military to attack uh, Mexico. And how would the United States feel about that? And secondly, how would they characterize that war? Well, I think that what they would do is they would talk a lot about the casualties, uh, especially the Mexicans who are getting innocently slaughtered as collateral damage. They would talk about all the hospitals and schools being destroyed. That's what the United States press would depict a Russian invasion in, into Mexico. And everybody would be quite shocked by all that. And I just wanted, when I've been listening to all the reports, it reminds me during the Iraq war, as well as the Afghanistan war, when I would watch other news channels, whether it be Al Jazeera or whether it be RT television or uh, looking at other news sources from less friendly regimes, you would see a lot of Afghanis who were innocent civilians being treated in hospitals and showing the damage that the U.S. military had done in this war on terror. And those are images I remember thinking, we never got to see that. And the casualty numbers hardly talked about. In the United States press during the Afghanistan and the Iraqi wars, it was all about military casualties and very little about civilian casualties. And now here we find ourselves on the other side of things where, of course, we're just reporting all the civilian casualties in Ukraine and everything is from the Ukrainian perspective. So I'm just mentioning that to kind of help people think not so one-sidedly on this conflict. I think it's important always to realize that there are always two sides of every story. And that doesn't mean that Putin is right or that Russian, uh, the military is right for having invaded uh, Ukraine. I don't see any justification. And in fact, the most damning thing that happened, I think, that was not that widely reported was that Switzerland broke 200 years of neutrality in order to take a stand against Russia and to put sanctions against them. That, to me, was a huge telling sign. If I were an average Russian, just sitting in Moscow, St. Petersburg, Skov, whatever, way out in Yetekaterinburg <laughs> or in Siberia. If I were one of them and I would hear that the Swiss are taking sanctions against us, I'd be like, huh, this is bad. <laughs> the Swiss didn't even stand up to Hitler, for God's sakes. And they didn't take a stand on that. Uh, they have never taken a stand on anybody, no matter how vicious. And they've just been adamantly neutral. They stood up to, to Putin and to, to Russia on this particular war. Hmm. 
I mean, to me, Switzerland is about as objective and neutral as can be. And if they are taking sides in this conflict, that says, well, maybe this is a case where there really is one good side and one bad side. Um, it could be just that bad. Again, I try to see things from the Russian perspective as much as I can, but this one is a bit of a struggle. I just trying to imagine, like, what is Putin going to do? Just assume that he does win and he conquers and he either kills Zelensky or he takes over the Ukrainian uh, government and installs puppet regimes, which, by the way, the United States installed puppet regimes in Afghanistan and Iraq as well. So it's the same story. How would the locals feel? Well, they might feel the same way that many local Iraqis and Afghanis felt when puppet regimes were installed there. They weren't too pleased with that either. The Ukrainians will just be such a thorn on on Russia's side. I mean, they're going to harass, play guerrilla warfare, uh, sabotage, be, do terrorist acts. They'll just constantly cause pain and suffering, not just to Ukraine, but particularly targeting Russia. They'll try to go to Russia, blow up stuff over there. It's just going to be a quagmire of epic proportions. And I'm just baffled that Putin, as intelligent, as brilliant as he has been for well over 20 years, that he somehow just lost his marbles and just doesn't see this. Or, possibly, Putin is the shrewd guy I've always seen him to be, and he's seeing something that I'm not seeing and a whole lot of other analysts are not seeing. i got to stay humble. i got to say to myself, well, maybe, maybe he knows something I don't know. Maybe he's got some other angle. Right now, it ain't obvious to me. Where do I think it's going to go next? I think Putin originally envisioned he'll easily take over Ukraine. That will be a done deal, be done in less than a month and then he'll move on to probably Central Asia. A lot of people are worried about the Baltic states because there's 25% Russians sitting in Estonia and Latvia, but I don't think he's going to go for the Baltic states, mainly because it's part of NATO. Putin is kind of cuckoo, but he's, I don't think, that cuckoo to just take on the United States and the entire European, all the European nations all at once. And by the way, most of the world, I mean, except for maybe China. He will really be inviting a, a real big disaster. So I just don't see him going after Estonia and Latvia or Lithuania for that matter. And they're also small, they're nothing. I think he likes big stuff. I mean, Russia's already the biggest country uh, by far. Uh, Canada is, 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 is much smaller. They're, they're like 1.8 the size of, of, of Canada, almost twice the size of Canada. And Canada's number two biggest country as far as geographic size. So I don't think he's gonna want that. But I think he'll look at Kazakhstan and say like, oh, that's a nice big chunk. So he's got Belarus, it's a big country. He'll take uh, Ukraine, another big country and maybe take Kazakhstan. And then he might look at the other Central Asian countries, all the other Stans, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan. However, given the, how bad this little campaign, going to what he, expe- he expected to be the second friendliest country out there, Belarus being the, the friendliest country for him, he thought that Ukraine would definitely be the second friendliest one. He's like, shoot, if this ain't working here, how the hell is it ever going to work in Turkmenistan or Kazakhstan? I mean, it might work even worse there. I think it's the buck is going to stop here, but I think if, it, if he really was going crazy and he needed to go further and more territory expansion, he's going to go to Central Asia and not to the Baltics. And finally, there's the nuclear weapon. Could he use it? Well, I thought maybe tactically he could maybe use it. Like, say, let's say he wants to completely obliterate an airport. 
That could be a tactical weapon. You could just drop a nuclear bomb there. The problem is that it leaves nuclear fallout and it leaves radiation. So then that airport becomes unusable once you, well, I mean, you've got to rebuild it, first of all, because you just blew it apart. Maybe a tactical use. There's a huge column of tanks and that kind of stuff, and you just want to drop one big bomb and get it all done with. Again, the problem is radioactive fallout. I'm not even talking about the political fallout that comes from that and the, the, the craziness. I'm just talking tactically. Just, you know, what's the difference between dropping a thousand bombs versus one big nuclear bomb? In the end, you're killing and destroying a whole bunch of stuff. You, 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 you do the same amount of, of, of damage. The difference, of course, is the radiation, uh, which, which results in it. And, of course, the political fallout, which is another thing. We, we have this strange notion that it's okay to drop, you know, 10,000 bombs, but one nuclear bomb is like, oh, no. That's, that's, that's crazy. That's, that's a mass destruction. I'm like, you know, a weapon of mass destruction can be just a machine gun. It kills a lot of people. And, and you can kill uh, millions of people with machine guns. Hell, in Rwanda, they had a, mach a machete. In Ru Rwanda, it's a simple machete. Killed a million people in 100 days. So that's a weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> so sometimes we think of just chemical weapons, biological weapons, and, and uh, nuclear weapons as the only weapons of mass destruction. I think sometimes we overlook that there's a whole lot of ways that we can kill people. Frankly, I don't think that he's going to go so crazy. But I could see if he had to pull out of Ukraine and he's losing the war and he gets rebuffed everywhere and he's just like, shit, I'm just calling it quits. Just like, you know, a final FU on his way out the door, he's just going to lob a nuclear bomb to just say, screw you guys and, you know, do something like that. But again, that's assuming he, he really truly has lost his marbles, which he may have. Anyway, hope that's helpful. If so, uh, spread this video around. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the video. Share it with people. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn. And go to patreon.com slash ftapon to sign up and become a member of my Patreon group. You can get rewards for little, as little as $2 a month. You can get the $25 reward, which I think is the coolest reward. You get $300 worth of gifts just for signing up. And I hope those of you who have loved ones in Ukraine and even in Russia... I uh, hope you guys stay safe and do well. I'm here in Mauritania, which is who knows where the hell Mauritania is. That's the beautiful thing. If there's a nuclear, a thermal nuclear Armageddon, I think Mauritania, wherever the hell that is, is going to be one of the last places to get hit. And that ends this episode of the WanderLearn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we've talked about, go to WanderLearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F-Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F-Tapon is always my social media username. My website is ftapon.com. Do you want to leave me an anonymous voicemail where you can make a comment or ask a question? Then go to speakpipe.com slash ftapon. Furthermore, if you'd like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. Now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn. Mm -hmm.